Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can turn to you in prayer. You are the God who hears us. You are the God who loves to hear from us. You are our good Father. And Heavenly Father, we come to you on the basis of what your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done for us, has won for us at Calvary's cross, that death he died to reconcile us to you, Father. We come sheltering under his shed blood. And Father, we uh, ask this morning that you might bless our time together. We're thinking about what is a really significant topic here this morning, the authority, the truth, the trustworthiness of your word, Lord. Uh, We know how greatly you value your word. Um, We know that when your word goes out, it never returns to you void. Father, it accomplishes your purposes. And we just pray this morning that each one of us might be strengthened by what we hear. We might be uh, built up in confidence, uh, Lord, when it comes to the truth and the authority of your word. So we ask for your blessing upon Jim as he comes to share with us later. Uh, Lord, we ask that this service might bring you uh, much honor and glory. Father, we also want to bring before you some uh, of the issues and challenges that we're facing here at Crescent at the moment, and we particularly want to pray for our sister, um, the family of our sister, Pat Davies. Uh, Lord, we want to pray particularly for Tom uh, and Andrew and Jonathan and and the wider family after her home call. Uh, Lord, we thank you for her life, and we thank you for uh, all that she contributed here at Crescent over so many years, and we just ask for your blessing upon that family as they mourn uh, this loss. We also want to pray, Father, for... Uh, our brother and sister, Harry and Stephanie, who are now in Greece serving you. Uh, We ask for your blessing upon them. Please use them out in that country uh, as they seek to share your truth. Finally, Lord, we want to bring before you uh, the Thinking Aloud uh, group that we run here at Crescent week by week. Uh, Lord, this is an opportunity uh, for, for the gospel to be shared with people who've maybe never thought about it previously. We ask for your blessing upon the team as they run that initiative. Lord, please, would people come to faith through it, and would it be a blessing to, to many who come along? So, Lord, we commit these various issues and initiatives into your hands uh, and ask for your blessing. So, Father, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Before Jim comes to speak with us in a few minutes, I just want to outline a little bit uh, about why we are thinking about this topic over four weeks. It seems a long time to to consider this issue, why uh, we can trust uh, the Bible. Um, But let me just outline a few details about why this matters to us here at Crescent. The Guinness Book of Records states that there is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. Recent, uh, Recent estimates put the number in print at more than 5 billion, which is extraordinary. And I'm sure many of you here have the YouVersion app on your mobile phones, a Bible app. Uh, In 2017, that passed 268 million downloads, which is extraordinary, isn't it? I'm sure it's much higher than that in 2021. The Bible itself is a collection of books, actually, as I'm sure many of you are aware. It's 66 books, uh, contains over 700,000 words in our English translations. It's written by 40 different authors in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years. And not only is the Bible immensely popular as a book, but it's a book people have dedicated their lives to studying, translating, and even smuggling. It's a book people have been burnt alive for possessing. And in a number of countries, even today, like North Korea, people still face execution for owning a copy of this book that I have in front of me. It's a book which some of the world's most influential people have revered. Napoleon Bonaparte said, the Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power 
that conquers all that oppose it. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has given to man. All the good from the savior of the world is communicated to us through through this book. At the coronation of our queen at Westminster in June 1953, she was presented with a Bible. And these words were said, Our gracious queen, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The Bible was and has been revered in the West. However, things are changing and things have changed rapidly in the UK and the West more broadly. The Bible has largely been Discarded. Our society now tells us that we define who we are. We choose who we want to be. We shape our present and our future. It's a message repeated over and over again in the media, in advertising, in books and movies and TV shows, in schools and universities. You'll hear that message. You write your own story. You shape your own identity. And in practice, this means that no one else has the right to tell you how to live your life. No one has that right. You do you. You speak your truth. You identify as whatever gender feels right to you. Express your sexuality however you see fit. You're not a sinner. Embrace and celebrate your flaws. Love yourself. I'm sure that message sounds familiar because it's the gospel our society preaches. The idea then that God's word, the Bible, might be the authority for what we believe and practice. Well, to be honest, that seems dangerous, oppressive, even antiquated. And as a result, criticisms fly towards the Bible, and they're many and wide-ranging. Here are some of them. It's just a collection of books by a load of human male authors. You can't seriously claim it's the word of God, can you? And what's more, it's not even historically Accurate, does that mean you surely don't believe in the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea, Jesus rising from the dead? Like, that's all fiction. You can't believe that. And what about the contradictions? Surely the Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't even even match up, do they? And if there are contradictions, isn't the whole book then incoherent? And then what about science? Surely science has liberated us from superstition. We don't need to trust an old book anymore. We relied on superstition to explain things that we couldn't understand in the past, but we don't need it now. We've moved on. We're advanced now as a society. We can explain how the world works, and the Bible actually contradicts science, doesn't it? It's much too primitive for us modern people, for our time. And then what about how the Bible was actually formed? Why these 66 books in particular? Why not others? Why didn't we include the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Apocrypha? And then what about transmission errors? That's mistakes made in the process of copying the biblical manuscripts over the years and translating the text. If there's errors in that process, doesn't that mean the Bible I now have in my hand here today can't be trusted? How can I know this Bible matches up with the original copies, what was written down at first? And finally, another criticism is very common today, and it's the issue of interpretation. Isn't the Bible culturally bound? Surely it can't speak into our modern 21st century culture. It's an ancient book. We need a more progressive interpretation of it. We need to allow it to move with the times. I'm sure you've heard many of those criticisms. 
And here at Crescent Church, we refute each and every one of them. Our website states, the Bible as originally given is verbally inspired by God. Through it, God speaks to us and every word is infallible. It is our only authority for what we believe and practice. Infallible, free from error. And that's what we want to talk about in this four-week series. We want to attempt to justify such a claim. And it is a big claim. It's an important claim. These issues matter enormously. It's likely to be a battleground for the next half century or more. And when you look behind every culture war issue, abortion, homosexuality, transgender rights, multiculturalism, racism, feminism, climate change, euthanasia, the list goes on, the authority of the Bible is at play behind each and every one of those issues. So whether or not the Bible is free from error matters for you. It matters for your children and it matters for your grandchildren. It matters because the truth is at stake. Whether or not objective morality exists, whether or not there is such a thing as good and evil, whether or not every human life is sacred. It matters because the claim of this book is that it shows us the best possible way to live our lives. And if that's true, and, it, and if you or your children or your grandchildren reject it and cast it aside, then we'll live diminished lives, destructive lives, both to ourselves and to those around us. It matters because we care about the truth of the gospel. We care about people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We care about where people will spend eternity. And the Bible articulates the gospel, doesn't it? It points us to Jesus. And it matters because in America, for every one person joining the church, four are leaving. And often it's because they've lost confidence in this book. They've rejected it as a source or the source of truth. And so for these reasons and many more, this series matters. And in today's session, Jim, Jim Crooks, one of the elders here at Crescent, is going to address the foundational question, what is the Bible? Then next week, we have the privilege of being joined by a man called Dr. Peter Williams. Uh, he's the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge and author of the book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, he's one of the foremost scholars in this area, so it's a real privilege to have him with us. And he's going to address the question, can we trust the gospel record? Then in week three of our series, Jim is going to be back, and he's going to be specifically addressing the question, is the Bible error-free? And then finally in week four, we're going to look at the question, doesn't the Bible contradict itself? And we're going to have a Q&A. And, and hopefully if you're on the church WhatsApp group, you'll have received a form over the past couple of days. Uh, and on that form, there's an opportunity for you to submit your questions. We'd love you to be doing that over the course of the four weeks. So even as you're sitting uh, here in the service, do feel free to submit questions to that. And then we're going to review those questions, and in week four, we're going to try and answer them. Uh, we'd love you to participate. They can be submitted anonymously, so don't feel you have to put your name. Uh, but do uh, try and submit at least one question uh, to that form. It would be really great to hear from you guys. Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, can I add my welcome, particularly if you're a visitor here? Uh, we hope that you feel relaxed and at ease among us. So in this talk, I'm going to explain a doctrine. I'm not going to defend the doctrine today. As Ollie said, that hard work will be done over the next three weeks. All I'm going to do is set out the doctrine for you to consider. And the doctrine can easily be described in a six-word sentence. 
The Bible is free from error. You may well ask yourself how a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years could be entirely free from error. It seems like a preposterous claim. But have a look at the simple argument on the screen. I was going to apologize for my PowerPoint, but I see that, did you do that? Did you redo this? I should explain, Ollie and I regard each other with mild affection, but um, there is one aspect of my ministry that fills them with horror, and that is my branding of my PowerPoint. Uh, so I see someone, some kind soul has completely redone the slides. That's fantastic, thank you. <clears throat> anyway, Christians claim, this is the first step, Christians claim that God is always truthful. In Christian thought, there are lots of things that God cannot do. That may surprise you. And he cannot do them because he has an essential character. So God does not lie because he just decides not to lie. It is impossible for God to lie, says the book of Hebrews, because in his very essence, he is truthful. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. That's the first step. The second one is the crucial one. Christians assert that the Bible is God's word. We're going to have to think deeply about what that sentence actually means. But for now, we can say that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. It therefore follows, if those first two arguments are correct, that the Bible will be completely truthful. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think carefully about that conclusion. The Bible is completely truthful. That statement applies that there are no factual errors in Scripture. If it affirms a thing, then that thing is true. If it records an event, then the recorded event actually happened. Now, as intelligent grown-ups, you will not misapply what I have just said. There are parts of the Bible that are poetic, full of metaphors and the use of hyperbole. We're talking about factual errors here, okay? And there's one other important caveat that we need to acknowledge. As Ollie explained to us, the books of the Bible were originally written on manuscripts uh, made of papyrus, and we do not have access to the original manuscripts. We only have access to the copies of the manuscripts. And Christians cheerfully acknowledge that sometimes in the course of copying a manuscript, a scribe made a mistake. He introduced an error. In nearly all those cases, the error is reduced to spelling mistakes or replacing an old word with a newer word, just as we might replace the word thou with the word you. But with over 24,000 manuscripts, many of them very early, it is possible for scholars to identify propagation errors and eliminate them. So my simple six-word sentence needs to be extended to a ten-word sentence. The Bible, as originally given, is free from factual error. Okay. Now, some critics might look at that ten-word sentence and think that it's very narrow. It boxes millions of Christians into a fundamentalist way of treating Scripture. But you'll notice that I have said nothing, nothing at all, about how we should interpret Scripture. In fact, the doctrine we're thinking about is actually very wide. On its own, it imposes no constraints on how any part of Scripture should be interpreted or applied. If you advance to my, or your next slide, Adam, I guess, um, we'll see the three points that I want to make in this talk. My first task um, is to reinforce what Ollie has said, to persuade you that this doctrine is important. Now, Ollie has done all the heavy lifting in that. I want to do something slightly different, bring it closer to home, because the real uh, conflict that, as we experience it, will not come from society around us. It will actually come from people who call themselves evangelicals. And the sad truth is that in many circles today, if I assented that the Bible is free from error, the reaction I would get would be a contemptuous smile 
or a lip curled in disdain. In progressive circles today, the doctrine is seen as a bit of 20th century rubble left by fundamentalists who waged culture wars in the United States in the 1970s. It's fashionable in progressive circles today to explain that this doctrine is a very modern invention, an invention of the 19th and 20th centuries. It was created, they claim, by fundamentalists who circled the wagons in an attempt to resist the flood of scientific thinking that flowed from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. So people who claim that the Bible is free from error are regarded a bit like members of the Flat Earth Society who use this doctrine as a uh, political purity test. Critics mock fundamentalists for standing on the doctrine as a sort of brute fact, an artificial foundation that they just believe because there's nowhere else to stand. Well, the fashionable critics might sip their AeroPress coffee with smug complacency because there's no other way to sip AeroPress coffee, but actual historical facts demolish their argument. I never miss an opportunity. Um, <clears throat> Let me quickly cite a few bits of evidence that prove that the Christian church from its earliest days has upheld the doctrine that Scripture is free from error. We're going to start in the second century. The church father, Arrhenius, speaks of the Bible as the pillar and ground of our faith, which is above all falsehood. He said that the Scriptures of truth were perfect since they were spoken by the rod of God and the Holy Spirit. Another of the fathers, Clement of Alexandria, spoke of the omnipotent authority of the Scriptures. He said there was no discord between the books of the Bible because they all have the same author. Now listen to Augustine, something I rarely do. I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. In the High Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas stated that God is the author of Holy Scripture. He wrote, it is heretical to say that any falsehood whatsoever is contained either in the Gospels or in any canonical Scripture. Now I come forward to the Reformation area. Luther made blistering attacks against those who claimed that there were errors in the Bible. Well, he made blistering attacks against everyone, basically, but in this specific case, against those who claimed there were errors in the Bible. John Calvin anchored his belief in the utter truthfulness of Scripture in the character of God. He said this, it's not sufficient to believe that God is true and cannot lie or deceive unless you feel firmly persuaded that every word which proceeds from him is sacred, inviolable truth. So this fiction that the doctrine of inerrancy is a recent invention should be shot down in flames. It should be graciously um, uh, contended with. It's nothing but a fashionable meme circulating on social media. A more insightful analysis would see this attack on the doctrine as yet another wave that will envelop the church in the next two decades, as Ollie has just said. And now here's the thing. The church in the West nearly went under during the first wave. It started in Germany in the 19th century. And by the 1930s, it looked as if liberalism had won the day. But by God's grace, a movement began just after the Second World War, that waged a hard-fought war against the liberalism of the 60s and the 70s. Think of the spiritual renewal of the Southern Baptists in the United States, the revival of evangelical Presbyterianism in our own country. That's evidence of that fierce conflict. But another wave is upon us. It began in the early 2000s with academics like Clark Pinnock and Stanley Grintz, 
and then came the likes of Peter Enns and Bart Ehrman. And as a result, a whole generation of scholars within evangelicalism is losing its confidence in the doctrine that the Bible is free from error. So this series matters, brothers and sisters. I firmly believe that we're standing on the battleground that will determine whether or not this church has a future at all in the years ahead. So let's get to work by asking ourselves, what actually is the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul is telling us in that verse that the words of Scripture are inspired. They have been breathed out by God. Now, does that idea make sense? I want to slow down here and take an actual, a simple example as I can. So let's imagine we're all in a, a cold dungeon in Rome. <laughs> Things could be worse. Watching the Apostle Paul construct his letter to the Philippians. Okay? So the, the quill has stopped scratching on the parchment. And we take this single piece of parchment and we pass it round from hand to hand. Okay? Maybe the ink isn't quite dry yet. What do we mean when we say that this letter from Paul is the inspired word of God? The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so the manuscript we are looking at uh, is written in Greek. So when Christians say that God speaks, they mean that God has condescended to communicate with us using human languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, the Christian scriptures are different from the scriptures of Islam in this regard. We don't make any special claims about the languages used in the Bible. We cheerfully admit that Hebrew and Greek are just normal human artifacts that evolved over time like all the rest. Now, some philosophers are horrified at the idea that the eternal God could somehow condescend to express his thoughts using human symbols and rules. But if you're horrified by that, if you're horrified that God would condescend to use a human language, what are you going to make about the central claim of Christianity? The claim that God condescended to become a human being called Jesus Christ. He spoke in particular languages with a regional dialect. There is nothing illogical about the idea that a personal speaking God, even though he is infinite, would condescend to use human language in order to communicate with finite creatures made in his own image. So let's return to this parchment written by Paul, okay? And think once more about that utterly crucial phrase in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. What does that actually mean? It means that the individual words of the Bible are God's words. It's not as if God communicates principles using flawed human language. No, the assertion being made here is that God's communication is verbal. It operates at the level of words and sentences. Okay? Now, hold on, you say to me. I just saw Paul write this document. He didn't go into a trance. I watched him ponder and think before writing each word. So how can you say that the words in this papyrus are God's words? And that was a good pushback because so far in this conversation, it might seem that there isn't anything really human about the Bible. But the 66 books do have human authors. Just look at the contents page of your Bible. It talks about the prophecy of Isaiah or the gospel of John or Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So what role did the human authors play? There are two key verses in the Bible that help us understand what it is. We've already thought about one of them. Let me now quote you the second verse, and it's from 2 Peter. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that is translated carried along in that verse has the idea of a sailing ship being borne along by the wind to a particular destination. So Peter is saying that just as a sailing ship is borne along to its final destination, so the Spirit of God filled the minds, the souls, and the hearts of the biblical authors with divine truth, mingling it with the writer's own style, vocabulary, and experience, guiding the author to produce the perfect result. Now, the obvious question arises, how do you combine human and divine authorship roles? I mean, people who are familiar with the original languages can enjoy the rich variety of writing styles that we find in the Bible. Some of it is beautiful, skillfully crafted prose. Other bits are just very ordinary, direct, everyday speech. So how do we put the two sides of the story together? If it's not simply human, and it's not dictated by God, how did inspiration work? Well, I suppose like all miracles, there is an element of mystery here. But perhaps it might be helpful if just for a moment, we considered the virgin birth of Christ. Mary was a spiritual, godly young woman, but she needed a savior, just like the rest of us. She tells us that herself. And yet, mysteriously, God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect Christ child inside Mary's womb. So let's use that as an analogy. The authors of Scripture were spiritual, godly people, but they weren't perfect. They were flawed like the rest of us. And yet, mysteriously, God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes like creative writing and memory with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect written Word of God. Now, the scheme I just described allows us even to handle grammatical foibles. I mean, we've just been thinking that God accommodated Himself to speak in human languages like Hebrew and Greek. The grammar, the vocabulary of those languages obviously shaped how God expressed himself. God stooped low. He condescended to speak in human language. So is it incredible that he should also take account of further limitations based on the style of each individual author? Through one, he speaks in the language of a shepherd. Through another, in the language of a civil servant. To achieve truly idiomatic speech, God even deigns to bend strict grammar rules as we do every day. So we've thought about what the Bible is. And just to close, and I want to consider what the Bible is not. One of the best ways to clarify something is to define what it's not. The famous theologian Karl Barth described the Scriptures as being like a scratched gramophone record through which we discern the Master's voice. The recording is flawed and damaged, but we can still recognize the original voice. So for Bart, it is Christ who is without error. The Bible, he thought, was a fallen human witness to Christ's truth. Bart had such a low view of human nature that he thought that humans were incapable of producing anything that was free from error. Now, that's obvious nonsense, isn't it? I could easily produce a book that was error-free. On page one, I would write one plus one equals two. On page two, I'd write one plus two equals three. Um, There would only be 10 pages in the book. But Bart created a distance between the Word of God and the text of the Bible. His crucial idea, which I regard as a heresy, was that the Bible becomes the Word of God in a moment of encounter with God through the Bible. So when I read it, the Bible becomes the Word of God. Now, 
That is not correct. The Bible does not become the Word of God when we read it. It is the Word of God whether we read it or not. The Bible isn't a scratched gramophone record. But secondly, neither is it a gold mine. In other words, we don't have to dig through tons and tons of human rock in order to get a few divine nuggets of golden truth. The Bible is solid gold. Every passage in Scripture has been breathed out. Paul says that directly. All Scripture is God-breathed. So the Bible does not contain God's Word. It is God's Word. Progressive Christians are very fond of the gold mine view of the Bible because it allows them to throw away Leviticus 18 and concentrate on 1 Corinthians 13. But the obvious problem with that strategy is that the reader is placing herself above the Bible. She is deciding what is divine truth and what is mere human rubble. So young believers listening to me now, you need to be really careful. You need to be on the lookout for slippery language. I mentioned Stanley Grant earlier. He once said this. I'll read it slowly because it's a lot of words. The Bible is seen not as a finished and static fact or collection of facts, but as a potentiality of meaning which is actualized by succeeding generations in the light of their need. Now, let me translate that verbiage for you. You can still believe you're going to heaven, but there's no need to worry about sleeping with your girlfriend, even if you're a girl. Peter Enns also adopts the gold mine view of the Bible. He says, it's not a timeless rule book or owner's manual. He encourages us to undertake fresh reimagining of old stories for our cultural moment. Now, this is the common sneer that the progressive gold miners make about historic Christianity. They say that we treat the Bible as a, a, a rule book. Well, we do no such thing. We argue that the Bible has been brilliantly constructed to teach timeless, universal truth to people from all cultures. The Bible is not a scratch gramophone record. It's not a gold mine. And finally, it's not a house of cards. It will not collapse when tested. Now, misinterpretations of Scripture might well collapse. A few centuries ago, some Christians misinterpreted poetic phrases in the Bible. Uh, they were so taken with the Greek philosopher Aristotle that they wrongly concluded that the sun moved around a stationary earth. Now, that misinterpretation eventually collapsed, but Scripture itself was unmoved. When it comes to the apparent conflict between the Bible and modern science, we need to remember that not all the facts are in yet. Well, we must also remember that the first 11 chapters of Genesis don't explain all the complexities that lie behind the origin of the physical universe. If you come back from holiday and show me the photos that you took while you were away, I would, of course, be delighted. Now, the photos would be historically accurate. They tell the truth about real historical events, but I still don't know everything that happened on your holiday. And I don't want to know everything that happened on your holiday. So in situations like this, the best strategy, I suggest, is simply to reserve judgment. Not all the facts are in yet. No one in the debate, whether the cosmologist or the theologian, has access yet to all the facts. So our best strategy is to be patient and wait for all the facts to emerge. Some of our assumptions may fall away, but Scripture itself will remain unmoved. The 10-word definition 
I gave at the start can be finessed. I'm going to the last slide now. Can be finessed a bit more in the light of what we've just discussed. I'm now up to 20 words, which is like inflation in Germany in the mid-1930s. Anyway, it's still pretty succinct, isn't it? When all the facts are known, the Bible, as originally given, will prove itself to be free from factual error. So we're done for today. I said at the start, all we have done today is assert that the Bible is free from error. But how could a thoughtful person in the 21st century become convinced that this doctrine is rational and true? And that question will, we hope, be answered over the next three weeks. Thank you for your attention. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we give you thanks that your word is true. We give you thanks that it is solid gold from beginning to end. Father, I pray for two things. Firstly, Lord, that you would convince us of the importance of this question over whether or not your Bible is free from error. May this matter to each of us individually. And secondly, Lord, would you convince us of the truth of the claim that the Bible is free from error. Lord, would we finish this four-week series being more confident in your word? Uh, and ultimately, Lord, would we have deeper hope within our hearts? So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.